Today we're going to look at our passage for this morning, which is John chapter 2, 13 through 25. John chapter 2, 13 through 25. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. And after making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied, what sign will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the statement that Jesus made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many, many believed in his name and they saw the sign, when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we are gathered here in your presence uh, this morning to hear and to receive all that you have prepared for us, Lord, all that you have to save, say to us, and Lord, and I pray that your word that is in my mouth, Lord, will go forth and will accomplish the purpose for which you send it by the power of your spirit, in Christ's name, amen. So um, we are uh, continuing to uh, work through the book of John here this morning. So the, the, the second part of the Bible is called the New Testament. It starts out with what's called the Gospels. It's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are all kind of like biographies about the life of Jesus. So John here uh, is a disciple of Jesus. He was one of his followers. And he is trying to tell us about who Jesus is and all that he did. And we saw last week that Jesus is kind of like the life of the party. His first miracle was a wedding was about ready to be ruined, and he produced all this wine so uh, the, the wedding celebration could continue. He kind of saved the day. But now this week, we see the exact opposite, right? We see Jesus crashing this party. We see Jesus uh, ruining uh, this party, so to speak. He, uh, this, is, this story is famously called the cleansing of the temple. Jesus uh, is driving people out of the temple who uh, uh, should not have been there. And uh, this morning, I want to start with the last verse, okay? Verse 25, let's look at it. And because he, Jesus, did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So we're going to start with a question here this morning, and the question is, what is in man? What is in man? And this hasn't uh, always been the question that people have been asking uh, throughout the, the years. Right? It hasn't always been the question that the church has uh, been addressing. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in every age has always addressed the, the questions of, of the age. Like in the 4th uh, century, 
Uh, it was um, the teaching, uh, the doctrine of God, what is the nature of the Trinity and things like that. In the 5th century, it was who is Jesus, the nature of, uh, of Christ. Fast forward to the 1500s, you had the, the Protestant Reformation, and uh, the Bible's teaching about uh, salvation. That was the big question of the day. But what is in man is the question that everyone is asking today. Let me share a quote from a Christian leader who puts his finger right on it. His name's Carl Truman. He's a professor of biblical studies and religious studies at Grove City College. Here's what he says. Our age wrestles with the question of anthropology, or what does it mean to be human? More specifically, what does it mean to be an embodied human? Human beings have bodies, right? For we now find ourselves not so much in a battle over the Bible, but in a battle over the body. Right? See, this is the most important question of our day, of our time. Just think, what are the cultural issues right now that are going on? Immigration, border, gender, sexuality, marriage, abortion, race. These all have to deal with, these all have to do with what does it mean to be a human uh, being. And here's the bottom line, though. When we look around the world, we see so much confusion, so much chaos, right? And it points to the fact that we really don't know what is in man, right? We really don't know what's in man. That's, that's the second thing I want Let's look at it. We don't know what is in man. Let's look at this verse again. I want to read it from the uh, New Living Translation. I think it kind of brings out uh, the meaning here of what's going on. No one needed to tell Jesus, him, about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. See, Jesus knows some things that we don't know. Right? We don't know what human nature is. If you just think about it, how do we think about human nature in our, our culture today? Uh, I'll, I'll give you some examples. I, uh, I've worked in the mental health field for about 15 years now in substance abuse, and I will tell you that therapeutic ideas about life have just flooded into our culture. Right? I was leading a group uh, at work this past week uh, on substance abuse, and we, we were talking about addiction and lying. Right? And I read this, we read this article. Here's what it says. It's from the website, The Very Well, Very well Mind. And addiction, such as alcohol use disorder, can cause damage to parts of the brain, such as the frontal lobe. Now, there's a whole bunch going on in that. Right? It, the assumption is that addiction is like, has its own reality, like it's actually a thing, and it does things. It's a disorder. It caused this stuff to happen. Such damage has been shown to increase the potential for deviant behavior, such as increased risk, taking or lying. So it seems that uh, this person who is very educated, right, is referring to uh, neuroscience or neuroimaging, you know, those images of the brain where they light up and all the different uh, colors and stuff. So what is being said is because the brain looks a certain way when someone uses methamphetamine, then the brain must be the cause and the brain will continue to do all this risk-taking behavior. Right? This is what's called in philosophy the is-ought fallacy. Right? It, is, it is a not a healthy way of thinking. Right? So, uh, so um, here's what the is-ought fallacy is. Things are a certain way, therefore they should be a certain way. 
So because the brain lights up this way when someone uses methamphetamine, the brain must be the cause, right, and the source uh, of that, which is, which is, which is wrong. Uh, I found this article uh, this past week with this title, 10 Life Lessons That We Can Learn From Animals. 10 Life Lessons We Can Learn From Animals. And one of those life lessons is uh, connection is important. And here's what, it, here's what they said. One of my favorite things about animals is that they are always down for a good cuddle session. Isn't that cute? And then they had this picture of some polar bears, right? And that's cute and everything until they mull your face off, right? And by the way, polar bears eat their babies. I don't know necessarily if you know if we want to uh, take life lessons uh, from them. But these are both, both of these things I just mentioned, the substance abuse and this right here, are a materialistic understanding of human nature. Right? In other words, human beings are just accidents. All you are is a brain, right? You're just an animal, just like a polar bear, right? So if human beings, all you are is just matter and stuff, that means that you're an, ultimately an accident, that it was through millions of years plus time plus matter plus chance, all of a sudden you became a human being. Uh, we, we at one time banned a slime from my house because it got into the carpet and uh, got everywhere. And, uh, I had a weak moment during the holidays and allowed it back in the house, so we got, we got slime everywhere uh, again, all kinds, of, all kinds of slime. But slime is how a lot of people think about what it means to be a human. Slime is, is mushy. You can mold it and shape it however you, uh, you want it. We, in today's culture, we think that we can be whatever we want to be. If, if I feel I'm a certain way, or I feel that I'm something, well, well I can be that. Or um, I can live my truth, whatever my truth is, I can, I can live that out, it doesn't really matter uh, what, it, what it is. And there are tons of people trying to actually do it. That's the scary thing. Uh, there's something called the Trans Species Society. And I went up on their, uh, the Instagram, and he here's what they say they're all about. They're giving voice to non-human identities. These are human beings that say, we need to give voice to all these non-human identities. Raising awareness of trans species issues and defending the freedom, look here, to self-design. You see that? They think they're free to design their bodies and their lives in all kinds of non-human ways. And I, 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 I'm not encouraging you to look at their Instagram, by the way. It was very dark. But there was a young man on there who was do, doing this performance art piece, right? He was actually acting this thing out. Uh, where he uh, uh, was presenting a new sensory organ for perceiving presences behind him, right? And this young man had something, this, this uh, electronic device surgically implanted in the back of his head so that he could perceive things um, behind him, right? And it was utterly sad right? and heartbreaking. You see, the consequences of not knowing what a human being is are disastrous. And we see the rubble all around us, all the time. What we think is in man affects everything else. See, we don't know what it is in man, but Jesus knows us all. That's the good news. That's the good news of our passage. Jesus knows us all. Let's look at it again in verse uh, 
22 and 23. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. See that? We don't know what's in man, but Jesus does. Jesus knows us through and through. And we've already seen this in the book of uh, John, right? That Jesus is God. He is omniscient. Therefore, he knows everything. He knows you best. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than uh, the culture does. And that is what the temple in Jerusalem is a reminder of. Right? This whole event takes place at the temple complex uh, there in Jerusalem where, where Israel would worship uh, God. Look at it in verse uh, 13, 14. The Jewish Passover was near. This, uh, this, uh, this celebration, this time when Israel would come from all around uh, and remember that God delivered them under the hand of Moses out of Egypt. Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found people selling sheep, or oxen, sheep, doves. He also found money changers sitting there. Why was the temple there in the first place? Think about it. Why why was that that, that building there, that place where Israel uh, worshipped God? Well, it was there as a reminder of who you are and why God created you in the very first place. Why God created us. Um, There's some books uh, written by C.S. Lewis called The Chronicles of Narnia. And The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, fabulous uh, books, it's about these four um, siblings, and they find this fantasy world uh, called Narnia, and uh, all along the way, they find a way somehow back into uh, Narnia. And uh, in one of the books, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's movies about them, but uh, the voyage of the Don Treader, the way back into Narnia was through a painting on the wall of a ship at sea. You see, the temple was like that. The temple was like that. Think about the beginning. Adam and Eve, God created them, Adam and Eve and put them in paradise. In his presence, there they were knowing him and walking with him and talking with him. There was perfect peace. All the sad things, they weren't there. There was no death, there was no confusion, no anxiety, none of that. But they were deceived, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represented a choice, either trust and obey God, or to self-define reality. We can either trust and obey God, what he says, but the devil came along and said, did God really say that? Why don't you figure it out? on your own and make up your own rules and live, live your own truth. And because of that, because they were deceived, they were driven out of the garden and every bad thing and every sad thing in life flooded into the world as a result. And that's where we've been ever since. This is the true history of humanity. This is your origin story. But God made a way back to Eden. Right? Just like the painting in the Chronicles of Narnia. And that was the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was the, the, was the way back to Eden. Not like a portal, right? But where we were reminded of who we are, where we came from, and where everything was ultimately going to head one day. It was a temporary doorway into paradise, into the presence of God. That's what the temple was. And, you know, numerous uh, scholars, uh, theologians, have pointed out that the temple in Jerusalem was like a mini Eden, 
that all the furniture and the architecture and the priests and everything were meant to take you back to Eden by faith, by grace, right? And Jesus comes to this place, the temple, where you should have been able to glimpse Eden. And what does he find? He found people making it hard for other people to know who they really are as human beings, right? This is why Jesus is so upset at the temple, because Jesus knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus, Jesus was there in the beginning when the first human beings were created. Let that, let that set on you. He was there. He knows you. We saw this in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were created through him. That is Jesus. All of humanity. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Your other option is you're an accident. See, Jesus is humanity's manufacturer. He planned humanity. He designed you. He built you. And then he tested us. Right? That's the process of manufacturing. Jesus knows us best. But Jesus doesn't just know, uh, uh, know us best. Right? He knows what you ultimately need in your life. Look, look at it in John uh, chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. The Jews replied to him, well, what sign will you show us that you're doing these things? Jesus said, well, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, well, it took 46 years, uh, to, this temple took 46 years to build, and you raise it up in three days? And John the Apostle says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus made. So Jesus shows up at the temple, and there is a showdown, and Jesus uh, is flipping tables and, and all kinds of stuff. And, and this obviously made some people uh, upset, the leaders of the Jews. And Jesus says here uh, that he is the true temple. He is the true temple. John said back in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the eternal word of God that tabernacled in our midst, that dwelt in our midst, that Jesus is the place where we can come into the presence of God, we can connect with God, we can know God, we can have access to heaven on earth in Christ. Uh, when we uh, pulled our troops out of Afghanistan, my brother uh, was in the Air Force over in, uh, uh, in Germany at Ramstein Air Force Base, and uh, uh, he helped uh, all these refugees come over uh, from Afghanistan. There's 23,000 people uh, came there to the Air Force Base. Right? We only have 18,000 people in Morgan County. So they literally had to build a temporary community for these people. But the point is, is that it was temporary. It was never meant to be a place for them to, a uh, permanent city for them uh, to dwell in. Same thing with the temple. And this is what the scripture has been telling us all along. It was never meant to be permanent. Right? The scripture has been telling us all along that when the Messiah, Jesus, would come, we saw this back when we looked at the book of Micah, that the temple would be destroyed, but then one day it would be resurrected and that it would be, it would be taller than the tallest mountain like Mount Everest, and all the nations would stream up to the temple to worship and to know God. Right? And he was talking about Jesus. 
Right? That's, what, that's what that image and that, that vision is all about. It's always been about Jesus. And Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place to save us from the delusion that we can know who we are without him. I know I spent many years of my life trying to figure out who I was as a young man apart from Jesus. And that led to disaster. And Jesus died to save me from that. Right? And he did. Right? He, did he died on the cross to save us from all the disastrous things that follow from that, from trying to self-define, create our own meaning, create our own reality, live our own dream or whatever. Right? Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all that sin. Right? That's, that's sin, living our life without God, doing what's right uh, in our own, God, our own eyes. He definitely died to forgive us, but Jesus died and rose from the dead. Right? He rose from the dead to restore us, to take us back to our original purpose, to the design for which God has designed us all along. Right? Jesus died and rose to make everything new again, just like Eden. In the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Narnia, this fantasy land, actually flooded into this world through that painting. And when we come to Jesus, the life of Eden, the paradise of God, what it truly means to be human ought to flood into our lives. All right, so I got a couple of questions for us to, to think about uh, in regards to this. Here's the first one. What is the house of the Lord? What is the house of the Lord? Jesus refers to the temple here as his father's house or the house of the Lord. But the temple was ultimately all about Jesus. Right? See, Jesus is the gateway back to God. Jesus is, 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 is the painting that we go through to be truly human beings. And everyone who believes in Jesus is a part of the new Eden, the new creation, which is church. I'll show you this. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Everybody knows this verse. If you're a Christian, this is probably one of the first verses you ever, you ever heard. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So the New Testament was written in Greek. And this verse right here, okay, yeah. Yeah, this verse right here uh, literally says this. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The he is, uh, is not there. Right? That throws a little bit different take on it. Um, but here's the meaning. The church is the new creation in Christ. If you come to belong to Jesus, you are a part of this new thing that God is doing in the world. You are a part of, uh, of the creation 2.0. Jesus is the, is the first life that came out of, out of death and out of the grave and conquered sin. And us in him, right? It's like, it's like an oasis in the desert. That's what the church is. And it's beautiful. The house of the Lord is Jesus' church. Right? This building is not a church, by the way. A, a little white building with a steeple on it, as beautiful as that may be and as nostalgic as it may be, that is not a church. A church are the people that come to belong to Jesus. It is the people who gather together right, in the Lord's name who belong to Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what 
the house of the Lord is. And what does Jesus do when he comes to the house of the Lord here at the temple? What does he do? What does he do when he comes to the church? Well, one of the things he does, he drives out everything that gets in the way of people knowing what it really means to be a human being. Look at this, verse 15 and 16. After making a whip of cords, he drove out everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. I don't know, how do you think he said it? Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So no more Mr. Nice Jesus here. I love how this passage says that he made a whip. You think about that. What if you were one of his disciples and you saw, what is he making? Right? And then he's cracking the whip. Right? He didn't just say, hey, look at this, guys. No, he used it to drive people out of the temple complex. He took their cash registers. And dumped him out. And he told him, get out of here. And knock it off and stop doing this. And he was upset. What would Jesus crack the whip at today? The most important issue of our moment is what it means to be a human being. So anything in the life of the church that distorts that, of who God created us to be, is what Jesus has got to drive out, right? So that we might be a holy people. We just sung the song, Lord, consecrate my hands, right? My, my mind and my lips and my, every, my whole being to you. So one of the things that's got to go is something called egalitarianism. And I'll break it down. Uh, but the church is infiltrated with egalitarianism. The Bible's teaching about what it means to be a human being, man and woman, is that we are all created in his image, equal in dignity. Men and women, right, created in God's image, equal dignity, different in function, different in roles. Now, egalitarianism says, yeah, we're created equal in dignity, but we can flip-flop roles. We can do the same things, right, that, that men's and women's roles are fluid, basically, but the Bible says that men and women have different functions, different roles, and that is to further God's purposes in the world, and it's something that we ought to celebrate, right? It is something that is glorious, right? It is God's good design. When God says it in the scriptures, we shouldn't be like the devil. Listen to the devil. Did God really say that? Yes, he did, and it's good for us. It's a glorious thing. So egalitarianism's got to go. Right? The Bible's teaching is that men and women, different. Hammer, nail. They're both good, but they both have different functions, and they can't do each other's job. Egalitarianism says, oh, no, the nail can be the hammer. That'll go well. All right, second question. Where is my zeal? Where is my zeal? And this is a question for you to reflect upon personally. Where is your zeal? John chapter 2, verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I love that. And the reason it's in bold right here is because he's, uh, uh, 
John is quoting from Psalm 69 here. And this word zeal in Hebrew is, is um, it comes from, uh, is related to a word that means red, right? Or the jealousy of a husband, a.k.a. when someone is fiery, mad, and passionate. Zeal, passion. What is zeal? It is a passion for what Jesus is doing in the world. That's what zeal is. It is something that consumes every part of your being, a burning fire that God might be honored, that he might be glorified uh, in all ways. So, if what God is doing in the world is restoring us as men and women, then we ought to have a passion for what God says a woman's function is and a woman's role. Now, I'm going to read some very offensive Bible verses. You guys okay with that? Okay, here we go. Titus chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. It's talking about the mature women in the church. Mature, I'll probably get beat up in some places if I read this out loud. It's all good. Mature women, uh, that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children and so be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. Now in the context here, uh, Titus is one of the, part of the, one of the pastoral letters, 2 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And the Apostle Paul is writing to his protege, uh, Titus here, and he's telling him, hey, listen, you are the general contractor for the new creation, for what Jesus is doing. And I have left you there Right on, I've left you there that you might build it up, that you might put into order what has been left behind, right? And you do that by preaching and teaching God's word, okay? But he's saying here in the context that male pastors, right? Pastor in the scripture is reserved for men only, and there's a reason for that. And by the way, I'm going to say a lot of things here. I'm not going to qualify them. Right? If you want qualifications, you've got to come out to the community group and you can ask any question you want. Right? And I'm always just sharing appetizers, just tidbits. Okay? It's not the full deal. Male pastors are to teach in the church that mature women are to train the other women to make these things a priority in their life. Right? And what are the things that this passage says uh, women are to make a priority? The first was to love your husband. Love your husband. Right? You guys mind if we get practical for a minute? Thank you, Bubba. That's all I needed. I know it's it's getting good when everybody gets quiet. Well, here's how you can love him. Feed him. Feed him. He's hungry. He is hungry. Trust me. He needs fuel. I'll share an example. Uh, Last night we were sitting at the dinner table, and and my wife was telling the girls a story about when we were dating, right? And uh, my wife was living in Lexington, Kentucky. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky. That's an hour and a half, right? Uh, we were long-distance relationship. And uh, at the time, I was working a full-time job. I had a part-time job uh, in my local church. Uh, I was also a full-time student getting my master's degree. And uh, I served in multiple volunteer uh, roles uh, in the church. And she said she felt sorry for me that I had to do all that and I had to come home, wash my own clothes, make my own food, so she made me a casserole, right? 
So she may have kicked me a cash roll because she felt uh, sorry uh, for me. And since then, my responsibilities have not uh, lessened, right? They've only uh, increased. Uh, one couple uh, in our church who will go unnamed shared with me that when they were getting serious, the husband said, listen, here's all I'm asking for. A good meal, a couple times a week, sex on a regular basis, no nagging. They seem pretty happy to me. They seem pretty happy to me. All right, yeah, it's okay. I know every guy in here wants to say amen. Don't be scared, say amen, right? Um, it's really that simple, right? And, but you might be thinking here, well, I don't know, I'm not a good cook, or I don't know how to cook. Well, there's a lady, her name's Joanna Gaines, right? Uh, everything that she looks, looks, she cooks looks absolutely amazing. Matter of fact, my wife uh, got her cookbook, and, and she's got these amazing uh, dinner rolls that she made. I can pop those things just like, like candy, man. They're, they're, they're so good, right? Tell your husband to buy you that cookbook, right? He'll buy it for you, right? Just become a student. Become a student, right? Start, you just got to start somewhere. That's all. That's it. And the second thing here that, that, that uh, the women are to make a priority is loving their kids. Listen, almost every church, here's what they're going to say. They're going to tell you everything that you can do as a woman in your life and in the church other than these things. Right? Other than these things. Other than the things that the scriptures actually say we ought to make a priority. Right? And that's, those are, that's what egalitarianism is. It's got, it's got to be driven out with the whip of God's word. But the scriptures say that outside of your husband, this is your job. It's to love your kids. This is your function. This is what God designed you to do. This is going back to Eden. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be a mom? It means helping raise future men and women, worshipers of God, who are going to go out into the rubble and the dystopia of our culture and build something beautiful. I don't know. That sounds important to me. That sounds kind of important to me. This is your mission field. That's how you got to think about it. These kids are my primary mission, my priority, and my focus. Right? Uh, the, the other thing that, uh, that um, Paul says we need to make a priority is, uh, the ladies need to make a priority, is being a worker at home. Uh, there's a, a, a lady, her name is uh, Rebecca Merkel. Uh, she's also a wife. She wrote a book called Eve in Exile, The Restoration of Femininity. I read it myself. I highly recommend it for everybody. Husbands, read it. Give it to your wives. If you're single, get it, read it. This is what she says. I would never say that a woman's place is the home, but that our priority is the home. See that? Right? It's the focus. It's the priority. Right? Every decision that you make with your husband, you should ask this question. Does this bless my family and give to them, or does it take away from them? Are they getting my leftovers? Right? And listen, the world, the culture is going to say, let me tell you where true freedom is. True freedom is you can design it yourself. Right? True freedom is everything else other than what Pastor Ricky is saying up here. But look at the culture. Look at the rubble. Look at the chaos. We need to give up on what the world says. Right? Because they don't know what is in man. 
Jesus does. And let me tell you this. Doing these things, making these things your priority is freedom. Right? It, it, my wife has a master's degree in, in, in speech language pathology. Right? So she was a speech therapist. Okay? Now, if she was to continue to do that, which she works part-time. Right? Uh, we're not saying don't work. Right? Um, but if she was to continue to do that full-time, she would be able to do one thing, primarily, be a speech therapist. Right? But making her home her priority frees her up to do like 50 things. Frees her up to do so much more, so many other things. We, we spend the rest of the time here talking about it. Right? It is just absolutely so beautiful. All right. Men. Men ought to know what is in man because we know Jesus. Right? Let's look at this passage again. Titus chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, and specifically verse 5. Yeah. Right there. It says that uh, wives are to be in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. So if you're a guy in here and you're single, you're not married, listen, masculinity in the scriptures is this. It is with zeal taking the sacrificial responsibility for others. That's what masculinity is. With a burning passion for God's glory, you take the responsibility to sacrifice for other people. And femininity is responding to that, right? It is celebrating that. It is encouraging that. It is supporting that, and it is helping with that. It's hammer and nail. Egalitarianism flips this around and says that it's okay to let the women take the initiative. Right? It's okay to let the women take the lead. Right? It's okay to let the wife take the lead and let her shoulder all that responsibility. Let her shoulder uh, the weight of all this and everything. But this passage says that men sacrifice for their wives by leading them into these things, not by doing these things for them. I'm going to say that again because y'all got quiet. This passage says that men sacrifice for their wives by leading them into making these things their priority. However, you got to do it. Lots of conversations whatever, not by doing these priorities for them, right? Our responsibility as men is not to, uh, you know, uh, take the woman's role, right? If you're, you're a hammer and she's a nail, well, you don't, you don't be a nail, right? You, you, you be a hammer, right? That's just egalitarianism, right? We can say we love the Bible. We can say we, 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 we believe all the scriptures, but if it walks and talks like egalitarianism, and then that's what it is. Right? right? We shouldn't be doing the things that, uh, that they are uh, called to do. So, men, here's what, I'm, here's what I'm asking of you. What would it look like for you to lead your wife to do these things? Right? And listen, we're not talking about this is not random or, uh, you know, or uh, you know, we just want to go back to the 50s. No, we're talking about God has given us a mission as men and women, right? And we need to work together as a team. And we have different roles to accomplish uh, that purpose, right? I wouldn't be able to do anything that I do without the help of my wife, right? She is a huge blessing. Men, what kind of sacrifices do you need to make to free her up to do these things? How much money do you need to make? How much work do you need to put in, 
right? What type of uh, conversations do you need to have with her? It's probably going to involve some learning on your part, asking somebody how to do it. You're going to have to study the Bible and be able to stand sure-footed on what God says uh, in the Scriptures. Talk to some men who look like they got it halfway figured out. Every egalitarian book that your wife is reading, take it out to your fire pit and set it on fire and burn it. Have a good old-fashioned book burning. It'll be fabulous. Invite your friends over to, to, to enjoy it. Uh, yeah, and then working together lovingly, humbly with your wife to make a change. Right? And this can only be done. None of this, none of what the Lord calls us to do can be done without a zeal for the Lord's house. To see your wife be the woman that she was created to be and having a vision for your family, envisioning your kids as future men and future women, future worshipers of God. But it definitely looks like this. It looks like the men out in front leading and saying, come on, this is the way back to Eden. This is the way back. This is, this is the way to being truly human. Right? It, is, it is in Jesus, and all that he says for us, in the life of a local church, which is the new creation, and doing it out of a burning zeal for God, just like Jesus did. And right? that's what we want to respond to here this morning.